Well, great to see everyone here tonight. Uh, uh, for those of you who are visiting, I think we have probably 60% of our <laughs> church that's missing <laughs> from going out of town or, uh, or um, being ill. So it's, uh, it's nice uh, to, to see you. Uh, just to mention, uh, usually on Sunday nights, especially when I'm speaking, uh, we do a, uh, a classy sermon, uh, which is uh, a little bit class, a little bit sermon, and a lot, of, lot more class sometimes. The class is on your part, not on my part. I'm not as classy as you are, so there we are. So the plan was tonight, as many of you were anticipating, and uh, 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 Brother David, who uh, uh, just read our scripture reading, was uh, absolutely incensed when I told him this afternoon that I was changing what I was going to talk about. But when I, uh, as most of you know, I, I have no idea when there's going to be a Monday uh, vac- you know, a holiday. And when there's a Monday holiday, 60% of the church leaves. Uh, so uh, we had planned to have a really interactive thing that we've been talking about from Matthew 18 on how we can re-examine what we do as a church, whether it be in worship or whatever, so we can better ourselves in uh, seeking the lost, leaving the 99 and go after, going after the one astray. So that was, we had gotten to the point where we was dependent upon you, and since so many are gone, we're, we're, I'm going to skip that <laughs> till next time. Uh, fortunately, I do a lot of studying and preparing things in case of something like this, and so uh, we're going to talk about part three of what we started at the end of the year that uh, our dear sweet sister Karen has been bugging the life out of me to get back to on why should we be assured of our salvation. So we, we have, we've done a lot of study and we've talked a lot about um, the fact that we should be assured. But as I mentioned in, in the introduction to these lessons at the end of last year, it's one thing to read the scriptures and say, okay, God tells us to be assured. But God does not leave it there. And the examination that we've done in this Uh, particular series is, well, God actually recognizes that it's probably not enough for him just to say. Now, we we would say, well, obviously, uh, it should be enough for him to say, "I'm, I'm saving you and Jesus died for you. But God goes so far as to reason it out, to give us a real solid way of saying, now I really can can know it. Now I can really feel it. And so that's been the direction that we have taken on this. We have just picked, in the beginning of this series, we've just picked some some text out of the book of Romans. We've looked at the text in Romans 3. We have looked at the text in Romans 5. And I was not exactly ready to talk about the text in Romans 4 when I did 5. Uh, I was still looking at some things that I wanted to get out, and, and so n- now that I've done that, we're going to look mostly at Romans 4. But before we do, we're going to introduce this with the passage that David read for us, with Paul's introductory proclamation about this, uh, about this message that he gives in Romans. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17, as David has read for us, the The part of the passage I first want you to notice 
is the words are the words that Paul gives when he says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ." Now, usually we read that pretty simply and say, "Well, you know, Paul's just proclaiming that uh, uh, he's very." very confident about Jesus, and the last thing he's ever going to do is be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, And then we just stop there. But I want to suggest to you that there's more to it than that, based on how the Old Testament uses the idea of being ashamed of something that God has promised and done. So you will notice in your text, I hope you have your Bibles open here to Romans 1.16. You will notice here in the text, when he talks about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, then stop before we go on, and then just notice the beginning of verse 17. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So if you put those two together, noticing that word for especially, uh, he, he says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, here's the reason I'm not ashamed. For in it, in it is revealed the righteousness of God. Now most of the time when we read that phrase, we just simply think, God's a righteous person. (laughs) I know it because he doesn't sin and he does right things and he's really good and all that. But that in the book of Romans is not the idea. And we want to examine then these two words first. The idea of why Paul is not ashamed and the idea of why he's not ashamed based on the fact that in the gospel is the the righteousness of God has been revealed. Okay, so we just look at those two points. All right, so simply we're going to start with about three passages here to get this in our minds. So we start with Psalm, uh, Psalm 71. And if you will notice that, uh, I, I... Debated on where I'd put these on the screen, but I'd really just rather you see it in your Bible because just possibly you would go, wow, I need to circle that in my own Bible. So Psalm 71 and verses 1 and 2. Notice how the psalmist speaks here. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Now notice how he has both those words in that text. He says, first, don't ever let me be put to shame. And instead, in your righteousness, deliver me. Now when you read that, you say, whoa, okay, so righteousness here, the righteousness of God has to do with the fact that God has, it has made a promise that he's going to save his people. And his point then is, that David's point in saying this is, please don't put me to shame, and instead, in your faithfulness to your promises, there's the idea of righteousness, in the faithfulness to your promises, Keep me from being disappointed or being put to shame by you not rescuing me. That's the idea. In fact, use the idea of being the refuge and rescue. Now go to the end of the psalm and look at the very last verse, verse 24. And David then says, And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. 
All right, so you, you notice the idea. You and I, and David as well here, putting our confidence that God's going to keep a promise. And so what do we do? We go out and proclaim to people all the time, look, you need to trust Him. You can actually be saved from all of your sins, no matter how bad they have been, no matter what they are. You can be saved from all those sins because God is faithful. And then just imagine, on the day of judgment, God goes, <laughs> well, not really. How do you look? You've been put to shame. And all the atheists laugh at you. And you look like that you were just as they always said. You're just somebody who puts faith in something that doesn't exist. So David's emphasis is, don't put me to shame. In your righteousness, save me. At the end of the psalm, he says, great, you did, and you put them to shame. They're the ones that boasted I could not, I, you would not come to my deliverance. See the point? Okay, notice another uh, passage uh, right quick here. So Psalm 98, while you're there. By the way, this is done a lot in the Psalms. I'm picking out just a, just a couple here. So Psalm 98, and notice verses 1 and 2. Uh, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. So you notice, how did He reveal His righteousness in the sight of the nations? It is, being, it is by making, being made known His salvation. That's a Hebrew, that's Hebrew poetry. Notice that the first line uses the word salvation, and the second line uses, uh, uses here the word, uh, in verse 2, uses the word righteousness. So here he's keeping his promise in order to keep salvation for mankind. Notice one other very quickly. This would be Hebrews, I mean, uh, Isaiah chapter 59. <clears throat> Isaiah 59. Okay, notice beginning at, uh, at verse 15. Isaiah 59, 15. So uh, Isaiah says, truth is, really, really speaking for God, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. That wondered there is amazed. No one intercede. Then his own right, his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Notice how salvation and righteousness is a is a Hebrew rhyme again. When you're reading righteousness, you're reading his faithfulness to keep his promise to save them. So in all three of these, and we could multiply many more, the idea of the righteousness of God is is referring to God fulfilling His promise that He would save His people and save those who would come to Him. So when you read Romans 1.16 again and 17, Paul is saying, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
Because, why? Because I'm absolutely confident that in the gospel, you're going to be able to see and have, have confidence in the fact that God will righteously keep his promise to save mankind. So where are you going to find a revealing of how God keeps his promise to save man? Romans 1.16. In the gospel. Right? Verse 17. For in it, the righteous God are revealed. Okay, time out. This is the classy part. <laughs> Any questions about that? Is that clear? If it's not, say so. I don't want you walking out of here going, well, I don't know what he said, but I didn't ask. We got it? So you can repeat this to your neighbor. That's what you're saying to me right now. Good. David. Yeah, he's saying, and you could look at it either way. I mean, you could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know I won't be put to shame. I think that was probably more accurately what he's saying there. I'm not ashamed of it because I am positive. You notice that word for, for, here's the reason, because I know he's faithful. And I know he is righteous and he won't, he won't put me to shame. So that's the idea. Good, very good, very good. Okay, anybody else? All right, good. All right, let's move then from, from there, and let's go over, and we have talked about this, so I'm very, very going to briefly mention this. Go over to Romans 3, verse 19 and 20, just so we can remind ourselves of the human problem here. So Paul has concluded this after two and a half chapters uh, that he has talked about Gentile and Jew all in sin. And so verse 19, he says, For we know... That whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, in chapter 7, Paul is going to say there was nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and just and righteous. But he's also going to say, it only showed us where we would sin, where we sinned. So it has really become our enemy. The law becomes our enemy because every time we violate it, it goes, you did it. Remember, remember in um, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, and also in Zechariah chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3, you see the same thing. The, in Revelation 12, he says, The accuser of our brethren has been cast down, who accuses them before God day and night. What do you think Satan's saying to God day and night before the crucifixion of Jesus and, and his resurrection? You can't save them. You can't save them. Nope, nope, nope. You're righteous. And if you're going to stay righteous, you cannot save them. You don't have any justification for doing so. That's what Romans 3, 19 through um, 30 here, or 19 through 31 here are, is doing, showing us why that is. It. Yeah, it strikes me. One interesting thing about the word righteousness, it, it really fits with fairness or justice more than we kind of sometimes think. It doesn't mean yeah. uh, behaving in a way that's appropriate for a relationship and therefore being just. Right. But it's not fair 
for God to save people in a covenant when that covenant is being broken. Yes. There has to be some mechanism. Now, he does give some mechanisms for folks to repent and to offer sacrifices and so forth and so on. But until you have the, the culmination of Christ's sacrifice, and that's Wouldn't the gospel, the rule of God from Christ, not just through Moses' law. Right. And so that one of the things that my neighbors, you know, just like in any state in America, in any country in the world, justice and fairness is something that people care about. Right. And so the idea that this gospel gives us a way for God to be fair to everybody, the folks who were insiders with the law and the folks who didn't know the law, because he has, through the gospel, a way of being fair, that is kind of key to that idea of righteousness, because he wants to save everybody, but he wants to save them by having everybody repent. Good, good, excellent. That's a, a great way to, to lay that out. So what I want you to have in your minds right now, most importantly, is the law becomes our enemy. Okay? It was, it's good and righteous to do what it was intended to do. It showed the holiness of God. But as he's going to point out as we get into chapter 4, the law then became our enemy because in the law, and he talks about this more in chapter 10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So the law comes with a curse. And we have all violated the law, whether it be the law of Moses for the Jews or the law of God that in general was put out to all mankind. We have all violated the law then, as he says in this particular point. You could stand before God in verse 19 and you could say, well, by, by the way, I've been, I've been pretty good at keeping the... And he's going, shut up. <laughs> You have nothing to say. You want to see my list? <laughs> Here's all the ways you violated it. And cursed be you. There's the thing. So that's why he turns around and says, but, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been revealed or manifest. I'm going to put this up here just in the, uh, uh, in, in the net version because I, I, I think they have very accurately, along with the King James Version, uh, translated this. He says, but now, apart from the law, notice how he has that apart from the law. We, we need to get away from that. It's a killer. It's a killer. Second Corinthians 3, Paul referred to it as a ministration of death. Fitting? Yeah, <laughs> sure is. It's a killer. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, faithfulness to, to keep his promises, uh, righteousness of God uh, is... is is re, ha, uh, boy, net version is real weird there. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although is tested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So our salvation then and the way God went about keeping his righteousness, faithfulness to us is through what Jesus did which is just summarized by the phrase in the Net Version and the King James Version, the faith or faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the point. We did that in a lesson back at the end of the year, so I'm not going to belabor that particular point, but I want you to follow the principle down so that when we, as we transition here then to chapter 4. Whoop, there was one little thing I wanted you to see there. Whoop, I did it again. Um, so uh, it, this is all by what Jesus did. The faithfulness of Jesus. 
Um, that may sound weird to you in some ways because you, you're used to reading some of the other versions, the fa- faith in Jesus to all who believe, which is a, a basic redundancy. Uh, that it's dependent on the Greek, whether it's objective or subjective, and nobody knows. It's just context. So uh, that's why I'm giving that version and King James. But the point here being, our confidence is in what he did. That's where our confidence is. In what he did, if, and then that's why we trust in him. So, as I said, I don't want to belabor that, but let's now notice chapter 4, 1 through 8. All right, and here's where we're going to spend our time. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? Let's walk down through this very, very simply. When he says, what did Abraham gain according to the flesh? What does he mean according to the flesh? Maybe it helps you to read verse 2 as well. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What would you, how would you, how would you explain according to the flesh? You don't get to answer it. Ed, Ed has been a preacher for many years, and I've been preaching longer, so I, I, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. According to the flesh. No, not talking about, a, he's not talking about, he's talking about, so, so good, good question. The idea is, what did Abraham personally discover according to the flesh. So what did he discover personally about the flesh? Now you've got to understand flesh here, obviously. We're only in verse 1 and you're already stuck. Now come on. Are you referring to flesh being the law? Okay. So whether or not in a fleshly, yeah, whether or not he in the flesh could keep the law. How do you do? <laughs> love it, love it, Josh. <laughs> he kind of, eh, maybe, a little bit, kind of, just lied a few times and almost got his wife <laughs> in big trouble and, you know, no. Nah. Tried to do the same. No, what, in other words, what did he discover according to the flesh? He discovered he couldn't do it. Yeah, it was a failure. That's what he discovered. Which is the same thing as saying in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, pronounced innocent idea, by works, then he didn't have something to boast about, but not before God. Who would he boast to? Not God. So the only thing left is, well, he might boast of, yeah, he might go boast him to Pharaoh, hey, I'm better than you, or he might boast to the Hittites, or I'm better than you, or he might boast to, you know, all those kinds of things. So when he says works, how would you explain works? If Abraham was justified by works, how would you explain works? Keeping the law, yeah. Keeping whatever law he was under. And how'd he do? That, not good enough. Not, as well as he did, not good enough. 
And the reason that is true is because, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, he didn't say Abraham did some really good works and was counted to him as righteousness. Didn't ever say that. It never said that. <laughs> Instead, it said Abraham believed. Abraham trusted. And it's counted to him as righteousness. Do you believe in faith only? Come in here, believe in faith only. You're, what? What? Ah, define it. I like it. Very good. In the context of Romans, I believe faith only, hook, line, and sinker. Because what he's saying is there isn't any other way but by the faith in Jesus Christ and what he did to be saved. That's the context. Our friends who have taught faith only, in a lot of cases, that's what they're saying. That is exactly what they're saying. We sometimes took what they were saying and extrapolated, acting like what they were saying was, and many of them weren't, what they were saying was, uh, we're saved by faith alone. And they were not saying without obeying God. I've studied with a lot of folks in evangelical faiths, and you can ask them that question. Oh, that doesn't mean you don't obey God. It just means you didn't earn it. Well, I agree with you. Faith only in Romans context, not in James context. James talking about something a little different. In Romans context, faith only is simply you haven't got a chance any other way. There's only one way, and it's by your faith in Jesus Christ. Remembering that when Paul in Romans uses the word works and uses the word faith, those are pregnant terms. Shorthand ways of talking about an entire system of salvation. And when you understand that, and you understand it's either or, then it's easy to say, no, it's only by faith. It can't be any other way. It's only by trusting in Jesus and doing what he says that we can be saved. We cannot be saved by trying to be good enough and keep the law and keep any, you know, whatever. You can't do it. That's the idea. All right. So be, I'm, I'm prepping you for conversations so that you don't step in a big hole you know, when you have a conversation thinking that they're saying something different than what you're saying. Go ahead, Ed. Misunderstandings about Pharisaism and Judaism, and um, and during that time it became uh, very clear that much of our thinking has been twisted by the Reformation, both sides of the Reformation. Yeah. So when you look at works of the flesh, you go back to Romans one verses one and two, one through four, where he talks about this faith that we have. He talks about that Jesus was the son of David according to the flesh. And from the very first, then, he's starting to lay out that the flesh for him has to do with these, these works that were identity works of the law. Circumcision, dietary, the stuff that gets talked about in Romans 14 and 15 later right. on. And so there was a division in Christians between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians who chose to fight about this. And when we start talking then about works of the flesh and we read into that, 
a bunch of psychology that was invented in the 1600s and then has been repeated through our lifetime, we get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. Uh, it is true that sin is often talked about as being fleshly. But in the argument in Romans, a lot of what he's talking about, when he uses flesh, you have to look at the context and what's he talking about. And so in the Romans 4 passage there, where he talks about that, he says that that righteousness of Jesus, that faithfulness of Jesus, is for those of us who believe. And so there, there is a us believing in that sentence, in every translation we can imagine. But it's the faithfulness of God that's tied to what we believe. Right. And that faithfulness of Jesus, rather, the faithfulness of Jesus in living that out, then uh, connects to a lot of things that go way beyond these identity issues of the law. Right. They really get at, at, like Romans 7, covetousness that doesn't look like an identity issue. I don't know of any church that's disfellowship somebody over <laughs> covetousness, although we're told in plain language, to do so. English and Greek, <laughs> that, it's, that it's something there to be disfellowshipped. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and so what, what, what Ed's pointing out here is that in the context of Romans, when you talk about works of the law and the Jewish thought here, it's the idea, and we've mentioned this before, but it's the idea of the way the Jews looked at uh, their connection to Abraham. We're connected to Abraham because we keep the Sabbath, we're circumcised, we're the, all that. You can see this in Romans 2 where he chastises them for believing in all those things, but he says you still sin and, and violate these things. So it would, and, and we've mentioned this before again too, it would be like uh, uh, conversation, microphone, man on the street. Uh, do you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die? Oh, yeah. Why do you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die? Because I'm a good person. I live a good life. What do you define as a good person and a good life? And I guarantee you, they're going to leave out the things that they constantly violate. And so, in other words, they got their short list. That's what the Jews had. They had the short list, and this is what Paul identifies as works. And so you see that, that contrast there. Very good. So the question before us, though, then, is Abraham believed, this is Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Would you define that for us, Paul? Sure. And man, are there some crazy things. In fact, David and I were talking about this the other day. The guy he was studying with just went haywire on this. But uh, we need to understand what that meant. So he's going to go on and talk about that. So you notice then in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as his due. So the one who works is? Pardon? I'm sorry, I didn't understand you. Is due a wage. Yeah, but what is he doing when he works? What's, he, what's Paul mean? The, man, the one who works. Yeah, he's following the law. He's, he's got his short list. And this is the reason he thinks he's, he's going to be saved. That's the one who works. You see how context is so important here in understanding the shorthand way Paul uses these words in Romans. Because if you don't understand that, you go, wait a minute. Christians have to work. James says faith without works is dead. What's the matter with you? Well, this is not the book of James. And it is in contradiction to James. And Romans is not in contradiction to James, as Martin Luther screamed about and wanted to throw it out of the Bible and stuff. That's not the way it is. He's using this in a context. So works represents keeping your little short list on the law. So he says that person, as uh, Alan said, would be he deserved it. Well, you've got to pay me, God, because I did those really, really good. Right? You, you have maybe a few commandments. 
that you might be able to stand before God and say, I never did it. <laughs> and God's going to go, you want me to list the 10,000 other things you did? <laughs> you want me to go down that road with you? Yeah. We don't have any do. That's right. As Jesus said, you're unprofitable servants after you've done all that's required of you. All right? And then, then this contrast to that, verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the one who doesn't work is the one who does not follow that principle of, I've got my top five commandments that I've kept, or some little short list or something like that. Instead, he relies on his trust in what Jesus did. That's right. He's relying on that. And when he relies on that, and not a short list of commandments that he kept, we, we could do that in the church. What's your short list? Um, I was baptized, I go to church, I sing, I pray, I take the Lord's Supper, uh, I go to the right church, I keep going, keep going, yeah, we could do all those things, and it isn't going to make any difference if you're not understanding that that is not the basis upon which you are getting your salvation. You're getting it on the basis of trusting Him, which means I do what He says, not perfectly, but I give it. I, 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 I'm, a, I'm attempting to do what he's asked me to do, and I fail a lot of times. Teresa. We've talked a lot about our necessity to obey God out of love and love. We didn't treat that much the same way. Yes. Okay, I am going to love God. I am going to love God. In other words, what Teresa is saying here, our basis of our salvation is, again, a trust in what Jesus has done on the cross and his resurrection. That, and then out of that comes such love and appreciation for him that we obey on the basis of our love for him. Remember, when he died, did we love him? Uh, no. <laughs> we were his enemy. So it come, the cross is what changes us. Ezekiel 36, how many times? Ezekiel 36, 25 through, through 27, boats that out very, very clearly. The result of what God does is what causes us to love Him and keep His commandments. Same way He dealt with Israel in the book of Exodus. Same exact way. He gets out to Mount Sinai and He goes, Now... I'm the God who brought you out of the land of, of bondage and from the house of slavery. How about you stay in it, you get it, and we make a covenant, and I'll keep taking care of you. He didn't say to Israel, now look, while they were in bondage in Egypt, now if you'll obey me really, really well, I'll get you out. That's not what he said, because he'd never got them out if that had been the case. He starts with grace. And he expects us to respond that way. If we do not respond that way, we're following works. And that's like 
your, your tax return is coming up, right? That's like serving God the way you're going to fill out your tax return. And I hear Christians say it all the time. Well, you really do, do you really think I'd be lost if I did? Look, you're going to be lost because you asked that dumb question. That's the reason you're going to be lost. That's ridiculous. You should have the attitude that you're going to do everything you can to serve him. That should be your attitude. I've got to move on. Okay, so chapter 4 then, notice what he does then. So in verse 6, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, notice the words, apart from works. God counts righteousness apart from your little short list or any other list. He counts you righteous apart from it. How does he do that? Well, he, um, notice, oh, I, I forgot one little thing there. Notice what he says in, uh, in verse, uh, da, 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 uh, where is it? Uh, da, da, da. Okay, verse 5. Once you fill in this blank. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Who's he justified? The ungodly. I want you to put that in your mind. He's justifying the ungodly. And all of us are ungodly. He's already pointed that out back in chapter 3. There's none who does good. No, not one. We're all ungodly. And he says he justifies the ungodly. How did, how did, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees when they thought they were godly? He says, oh, well, uh, you know, a physician comes to help those who are sick. Can't help you. You've got to understand who you are first. Oh, so important. So important. You don't understand that. You don't appreciate grace. You don't appreciate grace. You don't, do not love him as you should. And you'll never grow toward him in greater and greater love. You have to start there. It started with me being ungodly. I don't care if you grew up in the church or not. It started with you being ungodly. Very, very important principle. All right. Then David goes on to define this. He counts righteousness apart from works, and verse 7 and 8 defines how he counts us righteous. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blesses the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How are we counted righteous? What does God do? What does he do in this verse to be able to say that? Verse 7, what does he do? He forgives you. He forgives you. He doesn't count it against you because he forgives you. And he continues to forgive you. He doesn't even count your sin against you. What? And that is on the basis of what Jesus did. He didn't just do it when you were baptized. He does it all your life as long as you continue to live by faith. That's what He does. He forgives you. Now, in our denominational world, 
There's a picture given where they say, no, what God does is, He just pretends you're righteous. He takes the righteousness of Jesus and clothes you with Jesus' righteousness so He doesn't see your sin and just says you're righteous because of what Jesus, Jesus has clothed you, you know. He attaches Jesus' perfect life to you, and therefore he doesn't see your sin. Baloney. He forgives your sin. I like that one better. Because that's what Paul said, one thing. But secondly, I want God pretending. I want him to know. And he knows I'm righteous because he forgave me. And this verse comes out of Psalm 32. And David sinned with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. Now, can you be forgiven? Whoo! Something else. All right? I got five minutes. Now watch. Okay? Got it. You got to see. This is where I'm leading to the whole thing. We, I'm going to work on talking about verses 9 through 12. What the main thing he does in verses 9 through 12 is say the blessing is given to both Jew and Gentile because in Genesis 15, 6, God counted Abraham righteous two chapters before he was circumcised. So <clears throat> he was counted righteous while uncircumcised. Therefore, it is to everybody. All right, we, we got that. I think all of us follow that. Now verse 13. For, and I want you to notice that in 13 through 16 here, you're going to see four, four, four. 13, 14, 15. Four, four, four. I want you to see here, he's giving reasons why our, our salvation is based upon what God said to Abraham prior to being circumcised. All right? 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Well, what I'd like to stop and talk about heir of the world a little bit. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay? So we already know that. We've talked about that. Didn't come through the law. It came through righteousness that is based upon faith. That's how it came, right? Not the law. Yay, team. Okay? Verse 14. For, here's the reason for that. It is, if it is the adherents of the law, that is just the Jews, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Well, what he's saying is, if, if it is that the Jews only keeping the law are going to be saved, then the idea of being saved by faith and the promise of God to Abraham is null and void. It's either or. So you, I, I like to think of it this way. There's, there's two ways where you can be counted righteous. Never sin. Too bad. Uh, you already blew that one. Uh, never sin or have God forgive you and therefore you are righteous. Now, either way, you're righteous. Uh, since we don't have the first choice, we'll just do the second. But the problem is, people like to stay with that first choice. They like to keep on trying as if somehow, some way, they can be good enough tomorrow to make up for what they've done in their life. And you're never going to do that. And if you don't believe me, next time you run a stop sign, the cop pulls you over, tell him you ran it, you stopped at it twice yesterday. And that makes up for it. Try that. You won't, it won't work. So this is way we need to look at this. All right? It's either or. Then he says in verse, verse 15, and here's the kicker. For the law brings wrath. Why does it bring wrath? 
Because I broke it. Yeah. Because I broke it. I had to keep it. And the wrath of God, chapter 1, verse 18, is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. I'll tell you a way I've, all, I've, for years, I did not understand that verse correctly because I didn't start with the word for. And I read the verse, too independently, and said to myself, well, obviously, if there's no law, there's no sin. Is that what he's saying? He just happened to all of a sudden decide to say, by the way, if there's no law, there's no sin. In my mind, I'm thinking, but there is a law. And he's saying, that's not what I was saying. I'm saying that now you have come by faith... There is no law system. And if there is no law, there's no transgression. God took it out. So that now, your salvation has nothing to do with the law. Wait a minute. I'm going to get written up in the guardian of rumor, man. That doesn't sound good. Well, that's because you're not keeping the context. He's not saying Christians don't have laws. He's not saying Christians can just, whatever they do, they can't break the law, they can't sin. He's not saying that at all. He's using these two systems and clashing them side by side. And he's saying when God got rid of law, that whole law system... And that idea of I can be good enough or whatever, however you want to define it, or your short list or something like that. When he got rid of that, he put it in favor of, I am responsible for your salvation when you put your trust in what I did through Jesus Christ because then I count you righteous because I forgave you And because I forgave you in the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no law that is going to come along and condemn you. I took that away. Now, he's going to talk about that when we get to Romans 7. He said, you're dead to the law. So that now you can bring forth fruit to God. That's going to take you all week long to chew on that and not not to, you know, run out and commit suicide, you know, uh, or whatever. Boy, I tell you what. Do you see it? Or no? Where there, notice the four. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring. For if the adherents of the law are able are to be heirs, faith is null and void. You want that one? Nope. <laughs> Don't let's not. Well, that's what you're doing. If you're gonna if you're gonna say the law still exists, and that system still exists, then then that's the system and the promise and faith is null and void. What you ever think Jesus did is null and void. For, I'm explaining verse 15, 14 now, Paul says, the law brings wrath. I got to get rid of it. If I don't get rid of it, I got wrath. So he says the law brings wrath, but if there's no law, there's no transgression. And that's exactly what he said back in verse 8. Blesses the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's no transgression. 
because it's forgiven, because the law is taken away. Romans context makes that clear. If you said that outside of the context of Romans, you would confuse a whole lot of people, and me too. Any final points, questions? Yeah, very good, very good. All right, give that some thought, and uh, most importantly, as you think about it, questions come in your mind, please jot it down, slip it to me, and the next time we have a, uh, we, we will do a part four of this, and next time we do, uh, I will be glad to address those. Thank you very much. We're going to sing a song right now, and we are happy to help anyone who might be in a condition that you need spiritual help and uh, whatever that might be, especially if you have not become a Christian and you understand what you need to do to be buried with him in baptism, to raise a brand new life because of what Jesus has done, you could do that now while together we stand and while we sing.